Shipwrecks Radio brings you The Haunted Sea. Hello, this is Scott Martis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. I'm here and my co-host is Julie Wrench. Say hi, hi, Julie. I'm good. All right, and our special guest today is author Max Hawthorne who has come, returned to the show. He's been on the show several times. He's come on to talk about the re-release of Kraken Volume 2, which is part of his Kronos Rising Sea Monster Fiction series, and also about a an interesting report of a sea monster from the Gulf of Mexico observed from a Carnival Cruise uh, ocean liner. Um, hello, Max. Max, hey. Hey, guys. Welcome back. Thank you for your time. Yeah, oh, it's my busy. pleasure. I'm always happy to be here. Good. So you want to fill us in on um, what's going on with the KR series? <clears throat> sure. Uh, well, as you know, there are four books out that have been released so far in the Cronus Rising series, uh, two full-length novels and two novellas. Uh, The second full-length novel, Cronus Rising Kraken, Volume 1, is the first half in a two-part story, uh, a substantially, well, a sizable story, let's put it that way, since each of the two books is pushing 600 pages. And the second half of Cronus Rising Kraken is due out shortly. Uh, In the meantime, the book has been, or is about to be, I should say, re-released. And what is going on with that is, Well, first off, the interior uh, has been completely revamped for readers. I uh, looked over the book, and this this was written, honestly, when I was undergoing a lot of physical therapy and spinal injections, etc. And there were parts of it that just weren't up to snuff. They weren't, in my opinion, on par with, like, the first book. Uh, So I wanted to do a revamp of the interior, and the publisher decided, well, while we're doing that, why don't we get a new cover also? And so while I was working on that, uh, we commissioned a beautiful painting from paleo artist Davida Bonadona, I'm pronouncing that correctly, Uh, and it is completed and actually sitting in my office right now, framed. It'll be shown on social media soon, but it is a magnificent painting of uh, a scene from the book, ostensibly a battle scene between an enormous pliosaurus and a megalodon shark. Uh, Something to see. I mean, unfortunately, listeners can't see it right now, but uh, the painting is entitled Old Scores, and it is really breathtaking. I mean, breathtaking. The finished cover is going to be incredible also, but... uh, uh, it's a real work of art, literally, uh, huge wow. too. So that, combined with the revamped interiors, all being put together, in, you know, in I guess you'd say in advance of Crack and Volume Two coming out, and will be available in the next few weeks for readers who haven't read the book yet, or who basically just want to upgrade to it. Well, okay, now and where, addition- where can people get it? The book at. Oh, the book's going to be available online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, that kind of thing. Um, I would point out also that uh, in the interest of 
being fair to the readers, everybody who purchased a Kindle version of Cronus Rising Kraken Volume 1 is entitled to a free upgrade to the new book if they choose to do so. In fact, Amazon themselves will be notifying all previous purchasers, and they have the option to just click on that and upgrade their current book to the new one, including this spectacular new cover art. Okay, good. Yeah, uh, in addition to what you did to the inside of the book, have you added anything new to the text? In terms of the story, the story itself is not being altered. That is inviolate and will stay. But the actual language used, the vernacular, the flow, it's just like it's hard to write. And I know some authors go through this when you're in an extreme amount of pain or if you're taking a lot of pain medication. You know, your brain is, and not sleeping on top of it, your brain is just foggy. I mean, you just, you know, the words don't flow like Uh they normally would. And one thing I'm proud of is that readers always talk about how the books seem so easy to read because the, you know, it's just sentence to sentence, graph to graph, you know, the story actually just carries you along. And a lot of that isn't the scenery, it's the actual writing, you know, choice of words and word flow. And yeah. I felt that that the was, style. yeah, it wasn't, it was, it was a little lacking in Kraken. So there have literally been thousands of little tweaks throughout the book to give it that added polish to really, really make it shine. And coupled so, with this, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, did you purposely try to make the style of Kraken more similar to the style of the first book to make them well, fit better? together your your writing style doesn't really change it's just a question of whether you're hampered or not at the time it's really hard to you know put pen to paper so to speak under certain conditions you know if you had for example if you're a writer and you have like a screaming child in the next room jumping up and down on a bed it's going to be a little hard to put yourself in the zone and And you actually have that Yes, I do, although fortunately my office is at the very far end of the house, so yeah. I'm usually somewhat immune to that until yeah. they come bursting in like gangbusters, and then it's, you know, then they're in your lap. So. Yeah. Right. Like trying to, to ride Moby Dick with the little rascals hanging around. <laughs> yes, something along those lines. But uh, I'm very excited about the, the revamp for Kraken 1 and obviously Volume 2, which people are impatiently waiting for, uh, is going to blow everybody away. There's things going on in this that are really going to take people off guard. I I think they're going to be shocked, stunned, horrified, and pleasantly surprised by what happened in the story. And, of course, obviously, when the story, when that particular novel ends, we're going to be set up for a fantastic next book. Well, yeah, you know, one thing I was really impressed about Kraken is that, you know, you took it to a different place than where you were at in Kronos Rising. In other words, Kraken was not, you know, just a rehash with the same characters of the first book. You took it to a completely different place, which I was very impressed with, and and I'm sure other people are too. Mm -hmm. Well, I think when you write a story, when when you set up a, you know, any book, you have what's called character arcs, and these characters that you first meet, they have 
certain peccadillos, certain flaws to them. You know, there's things lacking in their life. For example, we look at Jake Braddock, you know, he's alone. You know, he's been a widower for three years. He's never, he hasn't been on a date. You know, he's become this recluse who buries himself in his work. And he lives a depressed existence, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. So Jake comes to you with a myriad, with myriad problems. And then Amara Takagi, she has her own problems. You know, she's also technically alone, despite being surrounded by a crew of people and friends. She has no romance in her life. She suffered from an abusive marriage. You know, she has physical scars in addition from an in- old injury. So both of them, they have problems. And they over the course of... Yeah, and that bad an story. One too. Yeah, so those character arcs, they need to come full circle. You know, they come, need to come to terms with what is wrong with them and what is wrong with their life. You know, and in Jake's case, it's so extreme as to be finding himself thousands of feet down, you know, underwater facing a monster with a submarine whose window is cracking in the same. Mm-hmm type of situation where his wife drowned, you know, although that was free diving, you know, putting himself in that threat. And the woman that he's now attached to actually does drown or is about to drown. And he is put on the, the block where he has to decide how he's going to handle that and how he steps up and comes to the plate, steps up to the plate, so to speak, you know, lets him, how can I say this? He, he settles all these old mental scores. You know, he improves himself and he becomes a better person. So the, the, the long story short, though, is when you have the situation and Amara does the same type of thing, at the end of this, though, you've kind of gone full circle with these characters. You know, they've kind of, like, been through it all. They've gone through these huge, life-changing, emotional, you know, events that have put them now in a better place. So it's almost like they're at the point where they're ready to ride off into the sunset in my world. Yeah, See? yeah. So once you ride off into the sunset, you really don't have much to work with. You know, you see so you this bring thing. a new cast of characters onto the stage. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you yeah. see this happen sometimes in movies where you'll see a character who went through these traumatic experiences and they, their character arc and they resolved everything and then they're brought back for the next movie and all of a sudden they yank something away from them. Like, oh, well, it was, it was great, but what really happened was this. And then the, to me, it happens in sequels mostly, the viewer feels almost cheated. You feel like, oh, well, now you just ruined my vision of that first movie. See? Well, you see, that was what, you know, to, 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 to quote an example, that was what was so great about The Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of Star Wars, you know, everything was nice. They won, and everything was great. And the whole point of The Empire Strikes Back was to take that and turn it upside down and put them in the worst possible position they could be in. Yes. Just to but that's, up the third part, you know, so that's yeah, that, not what that's, you're talking about. Yeah, it's it's a little different there because what they're doing is – and they're, they're smarter about it, is their character arcs were, it wasn't really the characters that were changing. It was the ultimate goal was to destroy the Death Star. I mean, that was the principal goal in Star Wars. And when that's done, that's fine. But now you're in a position where you're saying, okay, so we destroyed this super weapon, but, you know, you have an entire galaxy, you know, at the Empire's beck and call that's going to come back at you. 
Yeah, so yeah. you only you taken out like you know it's like on a in a tank battle and you destroyed a tank and now there's a hundred more coming at you. So yeah, in that situation you can upgrade. But I'm talking about from a, when you're really dealing with people, you know, at the, at the yeah. core. See, and so yeah, by bringing in a new cast of characters who are relative to the previous characters, then it lets you. Kind of yeah. like pass on the torch, so to speak. Kind of like, kind of like what James Michener did in a lot of his books. He told these long historical stories with, that were multi-generational, and you know, one part of the story would be about this generation, and then it would slowly flow into the new cast of characters, the descendants of the previous generation, and tell their story, and on and on and on, like Centennial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, of course, the key is <clears throat> your new cast of characters, they need to have problems also. You know, and here we see, like, Dirk Braddock, he's got issues. You know, he's afraid to go into initially into even his mother's quarters because we find out, much to our shock, <gasps> spoiler, oh, oh, well, that his mother is dead. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's suffering from that issue. He's suffering from being the smaller, weaker of the two twins. You know, that his brother is bigger and more handsome and stronger and, you know, and the woman that Dirk is pining for is involved with his brother. So he's got all these problems just from the get-go, you know, and more, you know, and yeah. his brother has other issues. So all these people have these characters, arcs that they have to travel through. But by giving you new characters and introducing new characters book by book, you kind of keep it fresh. You know, you're telling new stories and the readers are intrigued by what threatens these characters, you know. Can we what, what, expect another big jump ahead in time as the series progresses? Not as big. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So maybe a few years. Okay. I, I don't. I don't like to give out. You know, <laughs> tip my hand, so to speak, or whatever the case. But uh, well, you've you always know, the, got that option. You know, if if. If you decide, you can jump ahead a hundred years in time and see what's happened. You know. Oh, I know what happens. Space of a hundred years, pretty much for a year. Could have happened. You know. I know the entire series. What happens? To be honest, I mean, I make tweaks and changes as things go. You've got a a storyboard marked out in your head for the whole. I don't mark it out in my head. I graph things out ahead of time. I, you know, so I always have things to fall back on, and then it's just like like a, a barren tree in the middle of winter. And then as spring comes, I start adding on leaves and buds, and pretty soon, yeah. you know. But, uh, yeah, there will be, after Kraken Volume 2, uh, there is going to be a brief hiatus, I guess you'd say, where things kind of settle. And believe me, after Kraken Volume 2, things will need to settle, you know, in terms of, well, the world. And then the next adventure that is thrust upon our characters will arrive. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you, Max, with your characters, mm-hmm. do you ever grab, um, you know, different characteristics or issues from, you, you know, personal, personal life. life that people you know or experiences that you've had yourself personally? Do you ever uh, intertwine any of that? Well, they say that all writing is based on personal experience or should be. Um, people tend to draw on their personal experiences. And if you've had a lot of experience, 
then that loans itself to you being able to write more convincingly. So for example, a lot of people know that I'm an experienced angler. Uh, you know, I have an IGFA world record to my credit, a couple of master angler awards, and I've fished almost everywhere and anywhere, Alaska, Hawaii, Florida, California, all over. I have waged wars, so to speak, against, quote, monsters of the deep. You know, I've had and seen some incredible things, caught some monstrous fish, lost some insanely huge unknown creatures mm. at times. But the ability to have been in the thick of it lets you describe it better. So, like, there was a, a big scene in uh, the first Cronus Rising book where a tuna boat is out fishing for bluefin tuna, and they've almost got the, you know, an 1,100-pound fish brought to gas. And then the creature, but unseen at this point, takes their tuna. You know, the, the guy's rod, you know, bends down. The guides start breaking and popping off. Line is screaming. His nephew is holding on to him to keep him from being pulled out of the fighting chair and over the side. And then the line breaks or is bitten through, as it might be. Mm. You know, and so describing that scene, because I've been in those situations, is that much easier. You know, but lots of stuff. It could be anything from... You know, what does a bullet sound like going off close by to, you know, being in a fist fight to anything and everything. All these little details, you know, it could, could be anything. You know, it could be a funny conversation I had with somebody, something obnoxious that I told somebody one time. In fact, I believe there is a line in Kraken 1 where, which I don't think, no, I could say it on the air here probably. I once had, a, in my previous career, had some character that I worked with who was trying to, how can I say this, steal something from me, okay, because it was like a sales type of position way back then, and we got into a little confrontation or argument, let's say, difference of opinion in the manager's office, and he was trying to you know, act all big and bad with me, and he was like, you don't know who you're messing with, and <laughs> my response, and I believe Garm Braddock actually said this in the, in the book, is what I said to him. I was like, what are you going to do? change your tampon in front of me. You know? <laughs> I love that. And, and he was speechless. His jaw was hanging open, you know, and the manager, who was a bit of a gorilla, he was like, that's a great line. He goes, I'm going to use that. I'm stealing your line. Like, I'm going to use that on people, <laughs> you know. But the point is, so, you know, you come up with these things sometimes just in general conversation, you know, and they, they can be useful for a story. Something like that is so funny and so, you know, em emasculating and and just you know it's like a nuke going oh poof, they don't know man what to i'd say. say that's that's a good one yeah so, yeah and sometimes you got to put people in their place mm -hmm. so, tell, us, but yeah, tell us about I, the alligator fight with your dad oh gosh the one in florida yeah. your neck of the woods um man that was let's see that would have been about eight or nine years ago now uh we were down there uh staying at a or we had a rented villa in Kissimmee. Uh, there was a little lake there, a little 12-acre lake behind this development, and we were fishing there, catching uh, blue tilapia, which are delicious, by the way, but we were letting them go. And uh, this guy had, had warned us. He said, be careful, there is an alligator in there. But I was, like, looking and looking, and, you know, after the first day, you didn't see this alligator, so you kind of forget about it, you know. And <clears throat> so I guess this gator must have been attracted to the, the fish or the smell of fish blood. When you release a fish, sometimes they're bleeding a little bit, and it started creeping up on us. Mm. And I was uh, 
My dad was on my left, I remember. And then all of a sudden I looked and I saw this big log drifting toward me, you know. And I'm from New York for the most part. So despite the possibility of alligators in the sewers, you don't really see gators a lot, you know, when you're mm-hmm. just like. And so this log is coming toward me very fast. I, I was impressed because there was no breeze, you know. And well, then I looked down boat? at it. No, no, we were fishing from shore. Like the oh, water was at your shore. Oh. Yeah, the water was at our feet. And the, uh, all of a sudden the log's mouth opened and I saw all these teeth. And I, was, I looked and I was like, whoa. And I went, Dad, I went, watch out for the gator. And I sprang back like you do like if you're boxing. You know, I literally sprang back like six feet. And when I said this, my dad moved and turned and the alligator noticed him. And it changed direction and started going after my dad. And then I was like, oh, no. It was this fight or flight kind of impulse you get, you know, because this was a big reptile, a couple hundred pounds of alligator. And I looked and I realized my dad was kind of cornered because behind him was a a big, I guess, a sewer drain or something, you know, one of those really big ceramic drains. It's got like about a six-foot opening and a very steep hill. I mean, so steep, and he was 80 at the time, and it, oh you know, just to recover from a heart attack, he wasn't going anywhere. He couldn't have climbed that hill, and he was cornered. So I was like, okay, I cannot make tracks here, and the only option I had was to fight the alligator, and the only possible weapon I had was a landing net, you know, which uh, I had just bought from, I think, Walmart or something like that. And I, the landing net was one of those extending numbers, you know, so I guess it was about five feet long altogether. So I grabbed the landing net, and as the alligator, like, started, like, to make its lunge, I hit it right over the face with the landing net. And I must have hit it in the eye or something like that, you know, although it felt like hitting concrete. You know, you feel it reverberate back up your arm. And then it turned, and it it took off back out into the water, underwater. And then uh, I turned to my dad. I was like, that was close. And he was like, yeah. And then I thought it was over. But then the alligator popped up about, I don't know, 40, 50 feet out. And all I saw was its eyes. It was looking right at us, and it looked very angry. Oh, and okay. you heard this, this sound. It made this, like, roar almost. It was like this one, like, like that. And I went, Crooked oh. Sound. Yeah, I was like, oh, here it comes. Yeah, and I've I got tapes of them doing that. And I took my... Uh, my, I had a digital camera at the time, and I turned it on, and I tossed it to my dad. I said, Dad, I went, take pictures of this. I said, this is going to be good. I don't know what I was thinking, you know, too much <laughs> adrenaline. So the alligator comes charging straight at me, and he was using that tail for maximum propulsion, you know. And I was, like, waiting on him, and when he hit the embankment, thankfully, it kind of it had a lip to it. It sort of, like, curved up a little bit, and it slowed him just enough that he could only get like his front half completely out of the water on the first charge. Otherwise, he would have been in my lap, most likely. Oh my God! You know? And I jumped on him and I just started like hitting him, bam, bam, repeatedly. I'm whacking him with this big landing net in the, you know, on, over the head and stuff. And he's snapping at it and me, and you know, making these unpleasant noises. And my dad is clicking pictures, and I hear him going. He's like, "That's it, Max. Take it to him." Watch the teeth, you know, this type of stuff. And after I must have hit this thing about, I don't know, seven or eight times at least, 
he turned and he, he just he wasn't hurt. He just kind of like backed off and then he kind of took up position about maybe 20 feet away sideways to us and he just watched us and he had this look like, all right, you're a little too much trouble. I'll just oh, sit here and that's wait. Horrifying. You know? It was pretty, and, and then he started stealing our fish. He he stole several fish, and then he tried to eat the neighbor's dog. They had a big white dog. It almost looked like a Pyrenees, and the dog was barking at the gator, whom we had named Spike at this point. And Spike kept trying to creep out of the water and get the dog, but the dog was too smart and would back away whenever he tried to like creep up that little hill. You know, so it was like this this ongoing debacle with this animal just you know just it's very disconcerting when something's trying to eat you Man, i have say. to say i mean I, it, you know i don't know that i'd been able to think enough to even battle it i you know what i mean that's like well that's, the initial urge is to run like, yeah. really, like, I, I, I was, like, set to get out of there. And I looked, and I saw the old man, and I was like, then oh. then dad, you know, you got to yeah. yeah. And then later that night, we were sitting around in the kitchen, you know, having a beer, toasting our survival. <laughs> and I remember him saying to me, boy, that was a close one, Max. He goes, I thought he had me for sure. And I was like, well, I said, Lucky it was only like a seven-foot alligator, Dad, and not one of those six or seven hundred pounders that are usually down here. I said because I'm sorry to say I love you, but I'd have made tracks to Tijuana and he'd have eaten you for sure. <laughs> and we both laughed, but he thought I was kidding. I, I don't think I was. Well, they can, you know, they can move really fast for a short period, but they run out of gas real quick. You know? Yeah, he, I, I really, I think that that little curve on the embankment really kind of like slowed him down. If it had been a you know, really level slope, like flat almost, you know, I, don't, I mean, he at the very least, he would have had a, you know, the landing net in his mouth or I would have had to shove it sideways, you know, in his jaws or something like that. I mean, you know, the crocodile hunter, he knew how to handle alligators like this. Me, I obviously had no experience. Uh, of course, the piece de resistance was when I returned the landing net to Walmart for a refund. <laughs> well, I think, you've seen, I think you've seen some of the pictures that I took here of mm-hmm. at this golf course. And, oh, yeah. And I, I sneak up on them, but I only get so close. And the minute one of them starts moving a leg or something, I'm gone, man. I'm hauling ass. I'm not taking any chances unless I got a bazooka or something, you know. Well, yeah, I hear that. A grenade launcher. That's a yeah. fascinating story. I love to see those pics. <clears throat> oh, oh I had some of them on social media before. But, yeah, so <clears throat> I definitely do draw on personal experiences. So when you're describing the cold fear that, you know, or that trickles down your spine or something like that when something, a big reptile is trying to make a meal out of you, it's a little easier to relate to it because, you know, I semi-experienced that firsthand. God. Well, surely you took some of that experience and put it into your pliosaurs in the books. A little bit, yeah. I mean, the pliosaur is uh, obviously a different animal when you're trying to put yourself into the mindset of the creature, because I often write from the point of view of the predator of the animal itself, whether it be a, an orca, a sperm whale, a, you know, a pliosaur, or even a, an octopus giganteus. You know, you have to kind of imagine how this thing is. You know, how does, well, it, yeah, mind, how does think- its mind work? I would think the closest models we have to work with that we know about. That's not saying there's something that we don't know about for for definite yet. I suspect there probably is. 
but probably the closest two models you've got to work with that we know about are a leatherback turtle and a saltwater crocodile. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean when it comes to describing a pliosaur's mental yeah. state? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know? yeah I, I, I imagine these things as, I mean, well, first off, obviously that man in Costa Rica who had this semi-pet, you know, 17-foot mm-hmm. crocodile for so many years. about that. Yeah, and who was able to play with this animal in the wild, roll around with it, rub its belly, et cetera. And this, you know, a thousand pound reptile never made a meal out of him, never even tried. You know, it makes you realize that despite the fact that the scans of a pliosaur's brain aren't, you know, show the animal isn't, quote, enormous, you know, they're at least as large as a crocodile's brain. And if a crocodile can recognize a person and even play with a person, it tells you then that one of these animals is probably at least as intelligent as a dog, if not more. You know, well, they, maybe... they're pretty sure that Komodo dragons are as intelligent as a dog. So that would make sense. Yeah, that's something I would ra- I'd rather fight the alligator than a Komodo, to be perfectly frank, mm. especially with that saliva. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you put yourself into that mindset and you envision how the creature is, how its mind processes things, its thoughts, does it have emotions, you know, how these emotions process, and then you try and, you know, create that for the reader. And, you know, so far I've done that semi-successfully, so well, rep- I am you know, reptilian psychology is very hard to imagine from a mammalian perspective because... They take, the alligators, they take care of their young, but once they get to a certain stage, sometimes they eat their own young. So, you know, how are you, you know, it's ambiguous. Well, fortunately, <clears throat> having been accused in the past of being a reptile, I guess I'm a little better suited for these things, you know? <laughs> All right, well, so you're ready to talk about the carnival monster? Well, I, I mean, it, it turns out that having uh, the book series on social media led us to that or led me to that. So, yeah, I mean, let, let's discuss it. I'll, uh, you want me to give you a brief summary of what happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, and, and, and at some point you'll want to bring in the super predator too, the thing that ate the great white off Australia. So. Sure. Well, basically a few months ago, if memory serves, I was approached on social media by a man by the name of Paul George from the UK. And Paul wanted to talk to me about an experience he'd had about three years ago while working on the Carnival Cruise Line ship. I believe it's the Carnival Breeze. And while he was on there, he was working on Deck 12 on the ship, and he was a fitness employee. He worked for them in in a fitness capacity. And he saw a crowd of people, a small crowd of people, that were looking at something. Sorry about that. A small crowd of people that were looking at something over the side of the ship, and they asked him to come over, and they pointed at it, and down in the water swimming parallel to the ship was an enormous, some sort of enormous unknown sea creature. It appeared to be keeping pace with the ship, very casually, though, from what he described, and swimming along, he and the people watched it for, I believe he said, a good 30 seconds, and then it eventually 
ambled off on its own, you know, as if it didn't have a care in the world, just kind of angled away from the ship until it swam off and they couldn't see it anymore. Um, he <coughs> described it as being black in color, black or extremely dark gray. He said it had smooth skin, sort of like a manatee, but stretched tight, not loose folds or anything like that. It was kind of almost like shiny looking the skin. Uh, he said it had an enormous head, which he described as being like almost like a, a huge crocodile or alligator, very thick and powerful though. Uh, he said it had a, uh, a neck of about the same size as the head, uh, which I think he said the head was like 15 feet long or something like that. The neck was very muscular, he described it as. Uh, he interpreted what he saw beneath the surface as wide shoulders sticking out. Uh, he saw its upper back only, and the rest of it obviously was submerged. Uh, it was either at the surface, just below the surface the entire time. I had breached the surface a little bit once. He said its head and neck came up and some white, the water turned white around its head, which he assumed it was like exhaling as it was, you know, coming up for air or something. Um, and I'm trying to think what else off the top of my head. And that's, that's basically it. He said the portion that he saw was about 50 feet long. And he based that on having seen from up there, their lifeboats, which are a little bigger than 30 feet next to the boat uh, for drills and such. And that this thing was substantially bigger than the, the lifeboats, just the portion he saw, I should say. Uh, and he also described it as being much larger than whales. He'd seen all types of whales and sharks next to the ship you know, over the course of you know, the time he was with these people. And uh, he said it wasn't long and slender like a whale would be, you know, like a thin whale or a blue whale or even a gray whale or something. It was this massive, very powerful, he said robust creature. And he said it was obviously very strong because the ship, which I guess goes at around 20 miles an hour when they're just, you know, at standard speed, it was able to keep up with the ship without showing any effort at all. Um, and that's basically the, his encounter. And it was, I found it fascinating. I spoke to him for hours, you know, discussing various aspects of it, you know, sending him quick sketches and things like that. Well, photos of whales, trying to see if it was some sort of whale and he hadn't thought of it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it's obviously too big to be a big saltwater crocodile, but the thing is, saltwater crocodiles are turning up in the Gulf and in southern Florida. They're, somebody has released some or something, mm. but, but they're they're definitely there now, which is a scary thought. But this thing that this guy saw is obviously too big to be a saltwater crocodile. Well, taking oh, his yeah. testimony at face value, and, and you know, I'll be uh, blunt. I mean, anybody can try and put together a hoax, but I spoke to this man repeatedly for hours and hours and hours and, you know, you know threw all sorts of curveballs at him subtly to try and see if, you know, the story would change or alter or anything like that. You know, I yeah. found him very mm -hmm. sincere and very believable. I, I believe he saw what he says he saw, and I, I believe he's quite sincere in, in, in terms of it. I also well, usually, feel, usually what is a big red flag with somebody that's not telling the truth, they always go overboard. Yeah. You can tell that, like, wow, you know, this – the, the details this guy is telling me is just, you know, too much. That's usually oh. a red flag, but 
from what you yeah. seem to be describing, this guy is not going overboard. He's just telling you matter of fact. And yeah, the fact he also, that he said it was ten people that saw mm-hmm. it at the same yeah, time. Usually yeah. if you're making something up, you're not going to place other people alongside of you because that stuff can be checked out if someone really wanted to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I researched the ship, you know, because I was intrigued by his story, and, you know, it confirmed it. It went to and where and from, you know, he said in t- 2014. Um, you know, it just, it, it, it's, it's an interesting story, and not just that. He doesn't want anything from it. Meaning mm-hmm. that, you know, if he was, if most people that put out a hoax, they want exposure, they want fame, fortune, they want to be out there. This you is know? true. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he he does not. He he taken so much abuse from people when he tried to tell you know friends and family members what he'd seen and was mocked repeatedly that you know that he just doesn't want you know to get into it. And I asked him, for example, if he wanted to be on the show today, and he wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> so now, even, on the, phone, on, even on the phone. Based on what you got to work with, looking at potential candidates among extinct secondarily aquatic vertebrate animals, mm-hmm. the three the three best candidates that come forward are a mosasaur, a basilosaurine cetacean, or mm-hmm. a pliosaur. And you chose a mosasaur as the most likely candidate. Tell us why. Well, I mean, I wouldn't, like, uh, a basilosaur of some kind would be a potential candidate, but I really don't, uh, it just seems more like a mosasaur to me. And once again, we're taking this at face value, but I sent him recently, just a few days ago, I did a little follow-up with him, and as an experiment, because I kind of had in my head what he was describing, and he sent me a sketch of his own, which is, you know, on the, uh, you know, the site for the initial interview. Yeah, I saw interview. that. That was very interesting. So I took a, a sketch because he described this thing as being, like I said, black and having this shaped head and neck and broad and powerful. And, he, you know, he kept you know, focusing on the fact that it had like these, what he was saying, seemed to be like shoulders, you know, going out, et cetera, but somewhat underwater. And I had a feeling that it was something that what he was calling shoulders initially might have been, and the only thing I could think of that they could be were extended pectoral fins. You know, like when a shark or an orca swim, Mm -hmm. if you see them from above, you're going to see those pectoral fins from a killer whale, for example, sticking out to the side. And especially, I mean, the animal's being propelled by its tail, whether it's a cetacean tail or a, a shark type tail, whichever Most the case. Most dinosaurs had short flippers too. Mm-hmm. So the if we looked at that from above, you know, I, t- I drew a sketch basically of what would have been a shadowy interpretation of a blackish mosasaur seen from high up, the shape of the head, etc., and using the pectoral fins extended out like dive planes to basically represent shoulders. But I made sure that the sketch was kind of like vague and it faded at the edges, you know, especially in the the lower back where this animal would have, you know, its body would have drooped down and out of view, you know, through the water based on water clarity. And I sent him the sketch, though, and he was incredibly excited. He, I mean, this was like, because I'd sent him a lot of stuff in the past, even stuff that artists have done, which are on the site already. 
you know, a Disney artist did an artist interpretation of it. And he looked at that one and he said, well, the color was kind of right and it was broad like that, but the head looked nothing like that. That looks like a fat dolphin. You know, he just dismissed it out of hand. You know, this type of thing. So what I sent him, though, he said that was exactly it. It was exactly what he saw. And then I, I found that very interesting. So then I took that sketch and then I added dotted lines around where it was fading to finish the outline of what would have been a Mosasaur type animal. And I sent him that and I said, well, this, to my interpretation, based on what you're seeing, is our best bet in terms of, you know, the actual creature. Like what it would have looked like without water clarity interfering with your view from, you know, the 12, deck 12 of a ship. Yeah. I, I so, should mention... Mm-hmm that now we have fossil evidence to say that mosasaurs had dark coloration because they have found fossilized chromatophores. There was an article written in uh, Nature in 2014 talking about that, about mm-hmm. they've got evidence now that uh, some mosasaurs, a fossil weatherback turtle, and some kind of a fossil ichthyosaur all had the same dark blackish mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I was reading about that today, actually, um, yeah. Scott, when you sent me that link. And yeah. I was thinking the same thing, because that guy, um, the Carnival Cruise monster guy, he had that sighting in 2014. And these results weren't released until just recently, right? The research results about that? Yeah, this is color? a paper in 2014 that came out in Nature Journal. Oh, okay. well-known but, science journal from the U.K., but I'm I'm assuming he probably didn't know that. <laughs> Most likely not. I you know what think, I mean? It's, I mean, this is uh, usually unless you see this stuff on a pop science website. I mean, there right. were some some popular science articles about it, but you know, it didn't get a whole lot of attention to my right. Mind. And so yeah. for him to say, I mean, if he was, you know, making it up or whatever, yeah. you know, what's the odds he would say it's the certain color? Yeah, they've been doing research with. There are historical, well-documented sea serpent accounts of mosasaur-like creatures. Um, One that comes to mind is the famous 1852 Monongahela uh, sea serpent encounter where this whaling ship thought they were lowering on a whale and claimed to have harpooned and killed a mosasaur-like sea monster and kept parts of it then before they could get it back to land there was a, a storm and the ship was lost at sea somehow um, the captain's account of this wound up in a newspaper hmm so because he gave a letter to someone that means that something like that yeah they brought I the store yeah um, it's a famous Encounter and they they described the features of the creature that was killed, and the most interesting feature they describe is the fact that one of its lungs was longer than the other, and this is a real anatomical feature of sea snakes. It's something to do mm-hmm. with their helping mm-hmm. them dive, probably something to do with their buoyancy as well. Um, so, you know, that's an interesting fact. And um, back in the 90s, well, they were even speculating that snakes and mosasaurs may have had a common ancestor. There hmm. is something else, actually, about a Seabury's sea monster kill that also stands out in my 
mind that makes you say they may have, that may have been actually an actual uh, happening because the in the description the tail of the animal was described as terminating in flat firm cartilage which to me sounds like the type of hypercursal tail that mosasaurs are believed now to have had and yeah. there would be no way in 1850 for anybody yeah, to have any idea that one of these animals had a tail like that mm-hmm. uh, you know mosasaurs at best were just discovered if if at all then i'm not even sure when the first mosasaur skeleton was found but to have a tail 70 oh really well and my so, but, you know, it actually says, like, I got it right in front of me. The tail ran almost down to a point, terminating instead in a flat, firm cartilage. So, and they also mm-hmm. says that its back was black, fading to brown on the sides. So, the the animal that they harpooned and killed aboard the I'm going to try it, Monongahela. There you go. <laughs> I can never get that mm-hmm. one right, but anyway, and also though the size corresponds because this animal was supposed to have been 103 almost 104 feet long according to the stats that they have there just the fact that they have the stats the actual measurements the size of the teeth the numbers of the teeth all this evidence you know the fact that it was a male is is so scientifically accurate and detailed it seems well, far-fetched to, to concoct something like that whereas whalers regularly measure their catches and kills even it wasn't Soviet, a, it the, wasn't a giant snake because they clearly say it had flippers. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that could be the same species, to be perfectly frank. It would match in terms of size, certainly, because from what Paul George told me, you know, his animal, if it had a tail, you know, which obviously it had to because it was being propelled by something, would have been in that size category, you know. Yeah. And if uh, if a mosasaur functioned like a crocodile in terms of servicing for air, then you're, going, you're not going to see the whole animal at the surface regularly. It's going to come up, and you're going to see, like, its head and its upper back, and the rest is going to droop down a little bit, and it's going to propel itself along. Now, I thought one fact that he mentioned to me, trying to decide if this thing was real or not, you know, how he would know this, and also differentiating it between any kind of cetacean, even a supposedly extinct species, was the way the animal breathed. And he told me that when this thing came to the surface, its head was only you know, visible for a few seconds, as if it was drawing a breath or something. But he said it did not blow like a whale. There was none of that you know, sound effect that I like to use in my books and stuff for my pliosaurs, where this thing made this loud explosion of releasing you know, compressed water vapor. Mm-hmm. This thing seemed to, he said, the water turned white around its head right before it came up which had to be it exhaling. And I've looked at videos of crocodilians and sea turtles, you know, servicing for air, and they do the same type of thing. They exhale as they're approaching. I guess it's a stealth technique. You know, the crocodile wants to be minimally visible, you know, draw as little attention to itself as possible when it's, you know, drawing air. The sea turtle probably worries about predators, but they, they don't come up and do this explosive blast of air, this exhale like a whale does, and this animal did the same type of thing. It just released oxygen, you know, from its blowhole or whatever before sticking its head out of the water or breaching or whatever to draw air. So that, to me, once again, does not sound like some sort of cetacean. Hmm. Well, okay. How does this tie in with the super predator? 
And first, before well, we go into that, explain sure. to people what the super predator, what we're really uh, The super predator about. is a sighting from years ago. It's not even a sighting. Uh, I'm sure everybody's, well, many people have seen the, uh, the TV shows. There, there were several out there about it. But basically, a team that was studying great white sharks in Australia uh, had tagged a shark that they called Shark Alpha. I believe it was a female, like around 10 feet long, three meters. So we'll call it 10 feet. Yeah. And Shark Alpha, <coughs> and they called her that because she was this very healthy, dominant female. And they had attached a satellite tag to her that would keep track of temperature, her temperature, water temperatures, and obviously her movements. And then when the tag eventually would come loose, they would get it back and they would retrieve the data. Uh, when they got the tag back, however, it washed ashore sometime later. The tag uh, had appearances that the canister had been exposed to digestive juices, first off. And then when they tracked it, they discovered that the, apparently Shark Alpha had been consumed by something, or at the very least, the tag had been consumed by something. But... Uh, and the shark had a, there was this uh, sudden movement, like the shark would be traveling along, and then all of a sudden it dove incredibly fast down to, I believe it was almost 2,000 feet, 1,800 feet, something like that. I don't have the date in front of me, but uh, at which point then, in, within seconds, the temperature, the shark's temperature jumped from 46 degrees to 78 degrees, and it stayed there. And that told them that something with a, an internal temperature of 78 degrees had consumed shark alpha. The tag then exhibited different movements, movements that the researchers described as being similar to a killer whale in terms of it for the next eight days at least until it was excreted, and eight days is important in terms of the digestive process. The animal, whatever ate the shark, and we're assuming that the shark was consumed, but um, I don't know that something's going to want to eat a tag, but uh, that the predator or super predator, as it's come to be known, stayed anywhere from the surface to a depth of only 300 feet for the next eight days, which is indicative of an air-breathing carnivore. Is there any data that, that you're all aware of of the water temperature where this happened at the time that it happened? I, I don't have it in front of I believe the water temperature was, I believe, 40 degrees. But ah. like I said, I mean, this is years ago that you know this happened yeah. and that I, I wrote that piece on it. But it was interesting because I, when I was looking at this myself, it seemed to me like <clears throat> when you try and figure out. Oh, and I will backtrack by saying that I asked, you know, Paul George. I mentioned that this thing could have been the same type of animal if the super predator was real and you know, the shark was eating, et cetera. And he laughed about it because he had seen the specials, and he said, Max, let me tell you, he said, this thing I saw, a three-meter shark would not fill this thing up at all. Mm. You know, to him, it was like, that would just be like a, a snack. Dang. Seriously. I mean, think about it. If the head is 15 feet in length and the shark is 10 feet in length, that's not a big meal. If you're picturing a crocodile that size, for example. Yeah. So... You know, and, and ratios bear out. I mean, crocodiles usually have a head that's about one-seventh the length, their total length. So seven times 15 puts us in the same size range to backtrack into Mahangalego, whatever. I can never pronounce that name, remember it. But anyway, <coughs> that sea monster that was harpooned. 
So, but getting back to the super predator. So the, uh, I'm sorry, Scott, I completely digressed. What was your question again? Well, you, you were talking about it was like 40 degrees water temperature. Oh, well, well, where I was going with this is there mm-hmm. is now some fairly decent evidence based on oxygen isotope content on fossilized marine reptile teeth that probably all of the giant marine reptiles from the Mesozoic had elevated metabolisms. Which makes perfect sense. I mean, they ranged all over the globe. And and the interesting thing is the temperature ranges that they have given to these Mesozoic marine reptiles matches up with the temperature data that was retrieved from living leatherback turtles swimming in cold waters off Nova Scotia. And also interesting that the temperature ranges are in the same range is the fact that despite having this warm-blooded, pseudo-warm-blooded metabolism, the leatherback has a low reptilian diet. It doesn't need that much food as a comparable-sized marine mammal, yet it's able to have the warm temperature. And it also stays active, though, 99.9% of the time, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's part of what generates the heat. Exactly. And they found that the leatherbacks in the cold water off Nova Scotia, which ranged from 59 to 62 degrees, managed to keep their internal core body temperature 46 degrees above the water temperature. But now this was in cold water. In the Mm -hmm. same article, they seem to be indicating that if the leatherback had been in warmer water, there wouldn't have been such a, a high difference between its body temperature and the water temperature. That's interesting because the super predator, once it killed an H-shark alpha, or at least the tag, uh, and returned to the surface, its temperature stayed at 70 degrees constantly. Yeah. And that, that was a little bizarre. And the only animal that I could find that seemed to be able to pull that off was a leatherback. And obviously, a leatherback turtle is not chasing down and eating a 10-foot great white oh, shark. Oh, they eat jellyfish. Right. Wow. So, you know, I looked at, you know, different uh, culprits, shall we say, to try and figure out what could have possibly, you know, killed and eaten this shark, et cetera. And nothing seemed to fit. You know, the, the movements would have matched an orca, but the body temperature was impossible, not to mention the digestive system, et cetera. And an orca would not be able to fully consume a shark that size. You know, they would yeah. rip it open and they would just eat the liver. And I know they certainly wouldn't swallow this tag and would be intelligent enough to spit it out if they tasted it even. Uh, you know, but their temperature is like 98 degrees, the same as a human being's. A sperm whale falls into the same category, and a sperm whale could certainly not catch a fleeing 10-foot great white shark, nor do I think it could survive a dive at that speed. Well, check you know, whatever this out. Was, mm. uh, Getting back to those marine reptile temperatures, in the paper about the Mesozoic marine reptiles, they estimated that the isotopic data seemed to indicate that these marine reptiles had temperature ranges between 95 and 102 degrees Fahrenheit. The leatherbacks off Nova Scotia had 
temperatures between 102 and 108 degrees Fahrenheit. So that overlaps with human temperatures. It's even more so, which means that that leatherback might have been sick with a fever and needed to go to the emergency room. (laughs) Just kidding. But, yeah, so I don't know. It's, It's just a strange thing. I mean, a squid was out of the question. You know, there, there's like, I mean, like what kind of animal could this be? You know, and, and in the show they were trying to claim that it was a, just a larger great white shark. And even the, the, for me watching both episodes, the, the researcher, <coughs> excuse me, did not seem to be, you know, believing that at all. The one shot of them where they're checking the supposedly the core temperature of a great white, like a 16-footer, the shark is, comes to the surface and they have a, a handheld scanner, you know, to get a, a thermal reading on it. The shark comes to the surface. It's back for a split second, breaches the surface. When I say breaches, just is awash in cold seawater, okay? And they point this thing at it and pull the trigger, and they're somehow able to determine that the shark's stomach, which is completely submerged in cold seawater, has a temperature of exactly 78 degrees. I found that to be a little on the, how could I say this, bullshit side. <laughs> I'm sorry, well, I'm I, I just, just not buying it. It's just like, okay, well, this is the easiest way to blow this off and let this thing die down, et cetera. And, we you know, should, we're just going to uh, throw this out there. We should mention, though, that mm-hmm. great whites do have a somewhat elevated metabolism, not quite as advanced capabilities as a, a leatherback turtle, but they do – there are they are able to keep their body temperature a little warmer than the water. They they do indeed, and, and I addressed that in the Super Predator article that I wrote. Yes. But the seventy eight degrees from forty degree water seemed you know it doesn't it doesn't jive. It's too big of a jump. And then if you take it a step further, its its behavior is not after that is not shark like. It's behaving like an air breather for the next yeah. for the next eight days, and great whites don't do that historically speaking, and also it took eight days to digest before the track, you know, the tracker was excreted. And I believe a great white shark's digestive system is either 24 or 48 hours, I'm not sure, but it's certainly not eight days. So, you know, when you put all this stuff together, the finger does not get pointed at a great white Mm -hmm. shark. And now I've heard people claiming recently that now their theory is that, you know, oh, it's not a megalodon. They're not saying that because one of the shows tried saying that that it was an abyssal megalodon, a megalodon surviving in the thousands of feet down. And that was their claim in the second one of these two shows. And then I'm like, okay, well, this is totally contraindicating the data from the first show because the first show shows with the graph of how this you know, shark was swimming along you know, before it was attacked and then the tracker, what happened after it was eaten. And none of that shows it going down and living in the abyss. So if your megalodon lives in the abyss, why is it swimming up on the surface and going la 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 all the time and nobody's seeing it? Right. You know, besides the fact yeah. that it's supposed to live in the abyss and it's supposed to come up for a meal, and if it's coming up for a meal, why is it coming up for a meal, chasing a shark back down, you know, and then coming back up again? See, so none none of that made any sense. So now the new story is that there's some new subspecies of great white shark that's far larger than anything they know of that has a different metabolism and yada yada yada, and this is the new thing that they're saying. But hmm. to be perfectly frank. There have been so many sightings of marine reptile-type creatures around the world that I think it's just a matter of time that something is going to be found that we're not expecting. 
it just seems, you know, I, I don't buy well, any of these excuses for the Super We would Predator. hope so. That's the whole point of this program. Yeah, right, right. absolutely. That's the kind of work and, I'm working on. So. I, would, I would think that somebody, assuming that it, their film doesn't get confiscated or squashed, um, is going to eventually, with a drone, is going to catch sight of something unusual. What and about that, you know, Jerry Lamada? Lamada's sighting, and that goes back to the 70s, if I'm not mistaken. May 1969 on Vancouver Island, wow. BC, Canada. So his description is somewhat similar to what Paul George saw. He described an animal that to him looked like a, quote, turtle, a giant turtle without a shell that he said was oh. pushing 40 feet in length. So, but I've seen the, the video footage of the old film he shot, the old Super 8 footage, yeah. and stills, and the head that you see sticking out of the water doesn't look like a turtle head. I mean, from shape. It's sort of almost wedge-shaped, at least from the, although it is from the perspective, it's not perfect. But mm -hmm. it seems to have a head and neck that's around eight feet long combined, um, yeah. which I would assume is around four to five feet of head and the rest neck from the, you know, the footage that Very you see. Very impressive piece of film. Well, unfortunately, you know, the technology wasn't what it is today. But, yeah, it just seems to be, uh, this, it could be, let's put it this way, a younger version of what Paul saw. It's possible. Yeah. Oh, I, I wanted to point, mention, Paul actually said that it might have had, what he saw had like some little like spots on it, you know, like whitish. Like a leatherback. Yeah. So, hmm. um, you know, I didn't get into full details that like that. Sense. But, yeah, he, he, he was, you know, quite en enthused about it and quite uh, emphatic that this thing was definitely not a turtle. You know, I mean, I have like an extra hour or more of interview with him that, hasn't even seen the light of day, but that the head was definitely not turtle-like, you know, the neck, you know, and there, there was nothing about it except the sheer size and the breadth. That was the part, you know, his description of shoulders, which, once again, I can only do, deduce to be some sort of, like, pectoral fins angled out to the side, like you would see with an orca or a shark or something to that effect. Yeah, when, yeah. You know, if the animal's all black and you're seeing it from above, you know, you're going to see head, a neck, and then you're going to see these things jutting out. And, you know, to, an, to the uninitiated, you could interpret that as, quote, shoulders. A lot of times you look at, at Mosasaur's skulls from the top, and the shape is like a pizza slice that comes to a point, but not all of them. Some of them had slightly rounded mm -hmm. ends of their mm -hmm. snout, so... Yeah, well, he fun. said this thing was, was like an enormous crocodile or alligator. He said that one of the people next to him said the same thing, that the head, that it looked like an enormous crocodile, but black and smooth. It wasn't ridged like a crocodile. It didn't have the scales, you know. No scoots. No, none of that. It, yeah. it's, it was a very, you know, it was like a slick-looking thing designed for being able to swim and to be able to swim fast. Mosasaurs had scales. There's plenty of, of skin impressions of mosasaurs that are known now, but there were very small scales. Yeah, like so unless you were right up on it, you wouldn't have noticed mm -hmm. any... <coughs> Not to mention a lot can happen in 65, 66 million years. Of course. So, well, yeah. Well, I you mean, know, the thing I took away from his story that, that really stood out to me is the fact that he, he said that he was under the impression that it could have moved a whole lot faster than it was. 
Oh, absolutely. Which, once again, jibes with this whole notion of, with the super predator, of something to be able to catch a fleeing great white. I mean, based on my research, you know, great whites, I've, I've read different estimates, but have an absolute maximum speed in a, in a sprint, let's say, of 35 miles an hour. If you're a 10-foot great white shark and there is a marine reptile or some other giant predator that's bigger than a bus coming after you, obviously you're going to be going for maximum velocity. So whatever it was had the ability to chase down and catch this shark in the dark, we mm. would add, because when you get down that far, you're below the tropics, phototropic zone. You're you know, thousands of feet down. It's pitch black down there. So this thing would be able to handle... First off, it would have to be able to handle the sudden increase in pressure without ill effects, and it would also have to be able to catch and see, spot the shark, and be able to get it. I mean, that's, that's some of these animals know. that that hunt or are hunted down in below the photic zone <laughs> had really big eyes, like some of the ichthyosaurs and the giant squids. They had really big eyes, and that's mm-hmm. part of the reason why is to get more light out of what's oh, down there. There's something else I meant to mention also, um, going back to the super predator. Uh, I took a, say, the screenshot, which I need to send you guys, from the first uh, episode that they did. And I'm not sure which one, whether it was Discovery or what, but uh, the, they showed the, on the screen the actual tracking data of the tag. And they showed where the shark was you know, different depths, and you could see it behaving like a great white, you know, here, there, up, down, up, down, etc. Um, then they showed the point where it got attacked and chased, and the point where the tag got, you know, where it was swallowed, and the temperature changed, and then they showed it coming back up, and then they showed it for the next eight days, and obviously the change in behavior to more of an air-breathing predator, like I said, staying near the surface or 300 feet, you know, maximum depth, okay, until the tag came out. But what they didn't seem to point out at least from what I can see quite plainly on that tracking data, is that a few days before it was killed, Shark Alpha did the same type of thing. There is a long, sudden descent from the shark at high speed, going down, 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 thousands of feet, and then the shark came back up. And I mentioned this in my uh, article on the Super Predator, that I believe that the shark was attacked more than once and that it actually used that technique the first time successfully to get away. Hmm. You know, whatever was chasing it, it, it I mean, because there's no reason for it to die of that sudden depth in a, how can I say, a prey-rich environment where it was, you know, in the Bremer Canyon. So <clears throat> it looks to me like the super predator, quote, took a shot, you know, a few days before and missed its mark, and the second time, Shark Alpha was not so lucky. Hmm. That's scary thing being a great white shark. You're not always the, the top dog, you know. <laughs> well, we should mention that there are other historical sea monster sightings in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, especially the famous incident that took place out Pensacola, Florida in nineteen sixty two, the alleged attack by some plesiosaur like creature on some boys that were trying to dive on a shipwreck, which, you know, that's a famous story. Um, now, another Mosasaur-like creature that had an encounter with a cruise ship is the famous 
Santa Clara Sea Serpent of 1947 that the ship allegedly actually hit it and possibly killed it. Mm-hmm. And right off uh, Lookout Point, North Carolina, I believe, is the name of the place. Hang on. Cape Lookout or something like that. Let me bring up the file here. Um, let me see here. Uh, all right. Hang on. Give me a second here. I have the Santa Clara description from the actual paper. If that's what you're talking about. Well, yeah, it was described as being dark brown or black. Mm-hmm. And it had somewhat of an alligator-looking head, and they saw an eye. It was I'm not sure. in the it's newspapers at the time as being an oarfish, but it obviously, based on the descriptions in the eyewitness sketch, was not an oarfish. Um, but it was sort of mosasaurish, or bacillosaurus-like. Um, let's see here. You guys know that I'm going to be going to the beach soon, right? Now you're, you're killing me. Well, be careful. <laughs> you got, now you got great whites off the beach there, you know. Oh, Lord. Listen, my books have been destroying bathing yeah. suit sales for years. I'd Are say. you kidding? Oh, uh, Lord. But well, sunblock. you know, only 5% of the, uh, uh. the sea bottom has been mapped. So I'm All right, I got, a, I got a little blurb here from my friend Dale Drennan's Frontiers of Zoology website, it says, at about noon on December 30th, 1947, the Santa Clara, a Graceland steamer, ran over a sea serpent and injured it 118 miles off Cape Lookout, North Carolina. The creature had a head two feet across, five feet long, and had a body three feet wide. It had smooth, dark brown skin. It was estimated at 30 to 35 feet long. So that's kind of most of the source, but you have a different theory about it. Uh, please enlighten us. Well, are you talking about the Santa Clara incident? Yeah. I'm looking at the anomalist right now, and the thing that throws me off is that, and I'm going to quote this, it says that about 60 feet astern, astern it sort of humped over and started threshing around in the water, Different sets of coils appeared on the surface. The water turned white and red and oily. It reminded me a little of the way the water looked when a death bomb got a submarine during the war. And then he also goes on to say later it said that uh, it looked like a great eel, a seaman who also saw it likened it to the tentacle of a giant octopus. Mm. And based on those descriptions, I believe that this was a whale being attacked by an enormous squid. Of which, which wouldn't be the first time that's happened. Right. I think that what they were interpreting as the creature's head was probably the club of an enormous squid, you know, at the end of the tentacles, the two tentacles. And yeah. they're seeing tentacles wrapped around because the thrashing and the coils would make sense for that. And the red blood, though, would probably be coming from the whale, hmm. not from a squid, obviously, whose well, blood is... Not the eyewitness cute. sketch clearly has an eye, so one of the mm-hmm. guys claimed to have seen an eye on it. True. Well, I mean, uh, obviously we know squids have large I mean, eyes, but... Yeah, at, and, yeah, but I'm talking about on 
the object that you would describe as a club mm-hmm. had an eye on it. Well, when something's thrashing around in the water, I mean, think about it. If you're a large whale and you're fighting for your life against an enormous cephalopod, yeah. you know, you, who knows what you're going to be seeing? You're going to be seeing tentacles here, arms here, well, suction we'll, cups here. We'll probably never know it this late day, but it's one of the best mm. documented sea serpent encounters that we had to work And it would with. also make sense if it was a whale being attacked because the whale wouldn't be able to get out of the way of the ship because it was immobilized fighting for its life against my, its attacker. Uh, my hmm. friend Gary Manjacopra actually mm-hmm. wrote that article that you're uh, quoting from, from the Anomalous, and I helped him on it mm-hmm. with information about oarfish. And he actually went and found these guys uh, 50 years later, the ones that were still alive, this Axelson guy, there were like three or four crew member witnesses that he Gary was actually able to interview over the telephone mm-hmm. 50 years after the incident. So he actually talked to these people that saw it. And what did they describe? Well, the same things that are in the article and mm-hmm. what you're just describing. I got you. Yeah, well, the fact that there's a lot of coils being mentioned kind of makes me tend to believe that a a cetacean or a marine reptile is is not part of it, unless you're talking about a mosasaur itself having an encounter with a very large squid. I mean, anything's possible. Well, we don't know, but whatever happens, I would have loved to have been on the deck of the ship when it happened. (laughs) Yeah, not in the water. Oh, of course not. (laughs) Yeah. Now, you... In conversation with me the other day regarding this whole uh, Carnival Cruise monster, you wanted to talk about the famous Baron von Forstner uh, U-28 encounter during the First World War. Well, I think that when you look at these historical sightings, you tend to see a pattern forming. I mean, with an animal like that, if it exists, I mean, granted, it can be uh, the species would probably be reclusive and no creature in its right mind, especially a, a predator, is going to, you know, like sit there while a ship bears down on it or anything like that is probably going to get out of dodge most of the time. But the fact that there seems to be more than one sighting that seems to match this description, you know, that that's, to me forms a pattern, and patterns usually are indicative of something a little more serious than just an isolated incident. Well, so yeah. Gary, the Limatis creature seems to match a lot in terms of the description of what Paul George saw more most recently. And the incident with the harpoon creature, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to take, I'm going to do it again, Monongahela. Yeah. Got it. But anyway, with the Monongahela, with that animal, obviously that's back in the 1800s, but that does justify also the size of this type of animal. But the Forstner creature is also interesting because even though it's only described as being 60 feet long, in that it definitely sounds like a mosasaurid-type animal. Uh, If I recall the incident, they torpedoed a merchant vessel named the Iberian, and then they watched it sink. And the Iberian was probably transporting munitions because when it was below the surface, it exploded. And a lot of wreckage and this enormous sea creature was blown up to the surface, and this animal was thrown into the air 60 to 100 feet, crashed back down on the surface, and then sank from sight 30 seconds later. And this thing is described as a 60-foot crocodile-like creature, but with large webbed paws and a crocodile-like, you know, look to it. Hmm. So 
I mean, first, and it makes sense to me that an animal like that would, I mean, predators are opportunists. They always want the, the easy meal. You know, if you, if you can get a meal without having to work hard, without having to chase something, um, without having to fight and risk injury, most importantly, then you're able to continue to appropriate your species safely. So an easy yeah. meal is always going to be desirable. And what easier meal than a sinking ship with, God rest their souls, hundreds of dead or dying sailors bleeding out in the water. You know, this thing would basically be circling that and just cherry-picking off people and swallowing them one by one. Until yeah, well, look what happened with the Indianapolis. In yeah. That's a perfect example. Yeah. That's but very true. So, so this type of situation, I mean, you would think in times of war, and this is one reason why, and I've gone shark fishing where guys would use M80s and throw them into the water to draw the sharks in because that shock wave, that explosion, you know, is like a dinner bell to these things. And you're not going to get a much bigger shock wave than torpedo slamming into the side of a merchant ship. So, I mean, to these predators during World War One, <clears throat> maybe World War Two also, you know, this is like the sounds of human conflict is basically ringing a dinner bell for some sort of far distant predator like this, and yeah. it's going to come running. But this thing got, you know, caught in this blast and thrown up under the air and then crashed back down, and it may have died. You know, the shock wave may have killed it or it may have recovered, but you know, I people I've seen like a you know a, a site that tried to like attack this account and you know you can say what you want but the one point that I, I, I found annoying was they were talking about the drawing that was you know related to this thing that had been done back then by someone looks like a like a crocodile or something and of course it does because and to me it looks like a, a young crocodile that was in a jar of alcohol but that's yeah. simply because the artist is going to take the easiest thing he can get his hands on. You well, know? it's a stylized He's, version of, of mm-hmm. allegedly what happened. It's not an accurate representation of yeah, what was but actually it, seen. But, but, it, but I'm saying is, to in me, the ballpark, I would that say. drawing to me looks like a dead crock in a jar of alcohol. Even the well, pose. Well, that's what they're saying, yeah. too. Yeah, I've been stretched out. But uh, that's the point is, is that's not justification for... Just, you know, dismissing no. what happened. The, at the end of their article, they say, oh, he possibly mistook some piece of debris for a sea monster. So they're not saying that he didn't see anything. They're just saying, oh, he could have seen anything, which is, you know, just an opinion. So mm. Anyway. Well, he have a pretty good description based on that. Sure, but, yeah. yeah. One thing I wanted to add is that one of the founding fathers of cryptozoology the Belgian zoologist Bernard Huvelmans spent a decade researching all the known sea serpent reports that he could find and eventually published a book based on that research called In the Wake of the Sea Serpents. And what he did during the course of his research is broke down the different sightings into various categories to try to classify them. Now, his classification system since then has come under increased scrutiny and, and criticism. But one of the classifications he came up with, he called it the marine saurian. And he said it was some kind of a reptilian, crocodile-looking animal with flippers. And he su- suggested that it was most likely either a surviving mosasaur or surviving metrorhynchid sea crocodile, which we know about 
from the Jurassic early Cretaceous. So obviously these Mosasaur-like sightings would fall into that marine saurian category. And one of the ones that he put in that category was the uh, U-28 incident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds like you've got some reading to do, Julie. Yeah, I'm like sitting here. That's the thousand-page book, right? Oh, <laughs> so close to that. It's yeah, that's... at least 700 pages. Wow. But it's some riveting stuff. Not as riveting as a Cronus Rising novel, I'll bet. <laughs> well, I would say maybe you're just a little bit prejudiced there. Uh, I don't know. I'll I'll let the fans decide. That's right. Is that book out on the market, by the way? It's out of print, but you can get it. Oh. I've got a copy. I had to go through a bunch of excrement to get it, but... Really? Yeah, and see, I didn't even use a cuss word. I didn't cuss once. I'm so proud of you. Sell it to me. It's mine. You can't have it. (laughs) Somebody really should republish it at this late date. Hmm. Does it have any artwork in it? Yeah, oh yeah. If you look around online, there's plenty of artwork from it. In fact, uh, the eyewitness sketch of the the Santa Clara monster is reproduced in that book. Hmm. Yeah, that's where I got my uh, copy of the picture from. Okay. So back to the Carnival Cruise thing. Uh, So I did speak, like I said, to Paul George recently. And uh, a few days ago, and I'm going to actually put that out there, that more recent conversation I had with him, including the, the drawings that went back and forth, et cetera. Uh, it's nothing that sheds new, nothing dramatic that sheds new light, but it does kind of narrow things down and seem to indicate some sort of Mosasaur-type animal, which, of all your Mesozoic predators, based on the fact that they were around till the end of the Cretaceous, at a minimum, does seem the most likely candidate in terms of something from that time period. Well, you know, maybe you don't know, there are reworked, out-of-place, post-Mesozoic Mosasaur fossils that have been found in various places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I even wrote an article about that. It would not surprise me... In fact, I would be very surprised if there weren't some stragglers. I know that's going to sound crazy, but, I mean, let's be realistic. Like, not every large prehistoric marine animal from that time period died off after the asteroid impact. I mean, the the saber-toothed herring and CODIS, they were around for millions and millions more years. Mm-hmm. So... They they lasted outlasted that. Now, granted, that's only a five or six foot fish with fangs, but yeah. fish Nobody were a lot of big fish. Explain hmm? why this extinction event would be so selective. You know why it would kill the plesiosaurs but not the crocodilians and the sea turtles. The uh, you know? I, I read up on that and the and obviously watched a lot of documentaries on the subject as well. And from what I understood, 
is that the theory is that the immense temperature changes that came down that burned out everything from the asteroid impact, you know, this heated cloud of superheated gas, et cetera, they covered in forest fires, that they said that the temperatures on most of the planet went up to like an oven, a broiling oven, like the, would you bake and burn flesh, et cetera. And they, they tested how deep something would have to be buried in order to survive. And only 12 inches of soil seemed to make a tremendous difference whether something would live or die. So with crocodiles burying their nests, now, it seems likely that in some areas that some crocodilians manage to survive and pass on their genes. I think we're talking more of the oceans here, and in that case, you have the matter of if the air temperature is so astronomically hot, how long does it stay like that? If an animal comes up to breathe, it's probably going to be baked and die. I mean, that's you know a factor. And you have acid rain, you know, all the other effects of the impact, Sea you know, some survive. fish. Yeah, but sea turtles lay eggs that are buried once again. So you may be running into the same type of phenomena. You but know, they and have to obviously, for, air for the most part. Yeah, but not the ones that are in eggs already. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that that kind of like explains them continuing to. You know, it's a shame that plesiosaurs didn't lay eggs on land like in my books. <laughs> well, they used to think that they did. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, you understand what I'm saying, though. So, yeah, they said the smaller animals and animals that were able to be submerged, buried, laid their eggs that were buried, you know, then the, you know, avian types, the birds, you know, that, that their yeah. eggs were buried. You know, these creatures survived being baked and broiled alive. You know, the smaller ones, the ones that had things that were able to be shielded from the brunt of the heat. And then, of course, after the heat, then you've got your impact winter. You've got the entire planet freezing for months, if not years. You know, you may have had a lot of pack ice on a lot of the seas. I mean, who knows? You know, you're well, you basically know, talking about uh, you Armageddon. Know food chain that would have been unaffected mm-hmm. by the nuclear winter scenario? Mm-hmm. Hydrothermal vent fauna. Mm-hmm. Because they're all it's already independent from the photosynthetic food chain. You mean like Diablo Caldera? <gasps> I like the way you think, Possibly. Scott. Yeah, there you go. A reader was asking me the other day, I think it was just yesterday in fact, about that uh those sharks surviving in that superheated like volcano and whatnot. But <clears throat> I would think that a lot of fish you know, the fish in a situation like that where there, it was extreme heat Maybe they just didn't, the ones that were able to go deeper down in the water column, you know, those are the ones that would survive. Zephectinus obviously didn't, and that the question would be then: Was it not that deep of a diver? You know, was it? I mean, for some reason, did it need to stay in the into the, in the shallows, or did all of its prey flee down into the door, into into the deeper water where it couldn't follow? Maybe that's why they died out. Uh, I don't know. Well, do you are you familiar with the Cannonball Sea? No. All right. It's Paleocene of North Dakota. It was a remnant portion of the Western Interior Seaway that persisted beyond the Lake Cretaceous. And there, it a, was a sea that was in North Dakota, and it was inhabited by sea turtles and sharks. Uh, no plesiosaurs, no mosasaurs. But interestingly enough, there were no coelacanths in it either, and we know the coelacanths survived elsewhere. So, mm-hmm. 
I'm just using this as, as an example. Just because you don't find something immediately after an extinction in the fossil record does not mean that it's not out there somewhere. Anything is possible. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, they have ferns that have survived since the Jurassic, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, what do they call? There's a pine tree in Australia, the Wollemia mm -hmm. pine. Yep. Yep. And there's all kinds of little invertebrates, the vampire squid, and yeah, you know, if you if you really do some digging, you'll find all kinds of survivors. Well, the Wollemia pine was actually partially uh, the inspiration for Diablo Caldera. Really? How and did the that? Fact that I remember reading about it ages ago, and the fact that they had these prehistoric plants surviving in this enclosed place where they were shielded from everything since, I believe, since the Jurassic. So they survived more than one extinction. Yeah. You know, they didn't have any, obviously, any dinosaurs or, you know, even Pliocene fauna in there. But the fact that these plants could survive in this isolated environment under certain conditions certainly allowed me to take the liberty to say I can take a, you know, a caldera and pour some salt water into it to make this enormous saltwater lake with some rainforest around it. You know, yeah. things can be there, you know, like you said, geothermal heating to keep the place well, from freezing common, during ice ages. How common are both ends and gars? They're both all or, yeah. in North America. They mm -hmm. went extinct over in Africa and Asia and Europe. Why? Nobody knows. They survived here, and they're fairly common fishes, but by the middle of Kenozoic, they were dead over in Europe and Africa and Asia, and nobody knows why. So if you look at it from that perspective, gars and bowfins are every bit as much living fossils as the Celegans. Yeah, those gars look like prehistoric somethings. They are. They're straight out of the... <clears throat> Plesiosaurs used to eat them. The smaller ones. Yep, Basilosaurus used to eat those fishes too. The sea lampreys that are in Lake Champlain, Oof. they go back 360 million years. You find fossils from the Devonian and Carboniferous that are identical to the living forms. Well, that, whatever it was that Paul George spotted, I would very much like somebody else to, how can I say this? I mean, I'm hoping, see, he told me that he took a picture or two of it with his cell phone as it was starting to swim off, and nobody else there, I guess, uh, between jumping in and out of the pool and the hot tub had a, a cell phone handy. He just worked there. But I am hoping, though, that if enough word spreads, about the story that somebody else, you know, that was on that ship, either the group that was there with him will come forward and corroborate and perhaps provide some more details, or possibly somebody else may have been out on their deck, you know, and might have taken a picture. Mm. You know, I so mean, you're saying right. that he took a picture himself? Yes, but he lost the phone. Oh, my God. In a bar. Now, oh, no. In Again, the, like, in the what next time quarter of day did this, did this happen? It and was daytime. Where it was, exactly was was the ship when it happened? The, the ship was in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, it was definitely in deep water out at sea. 
he didn't know exactly when, but he, he it's all in, in the article I wrote. He said it was still warm out, so he figured it was August, September at the latest, um, that that much was in there. So you're basically talking about warm conditions and extremely deep water. I believe it's like 12,000 feet deep there or something. Mm. Yep, and you so, estimated he was 120 feet up in the air looking straight down on it. He was on deck 12. Deck 12. Yeah, so that to me equates to around 120 feet up. I've been on cruise ships, you know, they're sizable. I mean, some of them are even bigger than that. But yeah, yeah he he looked at the animal. He he watched it. He watched it swim. You know, he got a really good impression of it in terms of like its size, its robustness, its strength. You know, its speed. You know, all these things had a big impact on him. Uh, and the fact that it was so big. And, you know, it was fortuitous that he was used to the lifeboats that they have on there, that he had something to relate it to in terms of size, as well as the fact that he'd seen many different species of whales. Did he see, at the same time that he was looking at this thing, mm. could he see the lifeboats along the side of the boat at the same time? I did not ask him, but I would imagine that the lifeboats would not have been on that level. They would have been higher up anyway. So by forced perspective, they would have looked larger you know, yeah. they would have been closer to him. It's like when you take a fish and you stick your arms out closer to the camera to make it look bigger. A trick I taught my daughter recently. <laughs> well, yeah, but anyway. when these things happen, it's good to have something. She's funny with that. It's good to have something of a known size mm. to give a perspective well, while it's happening. You know? Yeah, the fact that he was used to you know seeing 150-person lifeboats from that vantage point there, and he knew how big they were which is 32-plus feet, officially speaking. I researched How long it. is the boat itself, the ship? The boat that he was on? I have to look it up, but it was sizable. I'm sure it's a that thousand. Would, that long. would probably have been the best thing he could have used to scale it because he's but that looking right over the side of it, you know. Yeah, but when you're looking down from a ship that size, all you see is like a wall if you stick your head right over the side or wherever's yeah, below you, you different decks sticking out. you see the of it, I think, for the most part. You can look from Trust end me, to end. It's, and it's like a small city. It would it would totally not work for you. I mean, literally, like the the, the Disney Dream I was on last is the size of a large aircraft carrier, like yeah. thirteen hundred feet long. It's impossible to look. I mean, compared to the size of the ship, it would be looking like a, at a dot, practically. Yeah. So his his relation. No, I I thought his you know using lifeboats as reference that he was used to seeing from that vantage point was highly useful. He was able to give yeah. a really good estimate in terms of you know he estimated the size of its head, the, the size of the portion of the body that he saw. You know he wanted to make sure he was emphasizing that the portion he saw was a good fifty feet long in his opinion because the portion he saw was substantially larger than one of the lifeboats. Hmm. All right, well, I think we have about 20 minutes left. So is there anything relative to this or to anything else or to your books that you want to get in? I mean, whatever you guys want to discuss. I mean, I can't get into what's going to happen, obviously, in terms of Kraken Volume 2. There won't be any spoilers or anything like that. Um, I will share that. There's a lot of shocking things on the horizon. There are, uh, uh, we're not going to have the steamy romance scenes that were in the first half, and that's not by choice. It's just the story no longer calls for that. Initially, Kraken was all supposed to be one book, but the book 
I'm going to say, got away from me. Yep. You know, in terms of the size of the story, like I didn't realize I had acquired so much more to the story, you know, over a couple of years of, of hoarding scenes, et cetera, and plot ideas and <coughs> so forth. So I could not have, a, a, you know, put out a 1,200-page book. Mm. I'm not Stephen King. But uh, so the, you know, the, the romance part was established early on. You know, I think it was chapter, the notorious chapter 16. But Stephen we're not going to have any of that amusing, stuff. Uh, Mm-hmm. An amusing name for that phenomenon. He calls it diarrhea of the word processor. Mm. No, it's not. It's not that you can't stop telling the story. It's that you have so big of a story that you want to tell, and you add, you know you have so much that comes with it. You know, like book one, Cronus Rising, the first novel, is a yeah. relatively simple story. You, know, you have this creature on the loose. It, it damages a shark finning ship early on. You meet your principal characters, and you learn about them. The monster starts doing more and more damage. People are disappearing. Things are getting attacked and killed and eaten, etc. You're meeting more and more your supporting cast, etc. And then the true adventure, like in Jaws, comes along. You know, we're going on the hunt. We're going to hunt this thing down. We're going to capture it. We're going to kill it. Whatever it's going to be. And then what yeah. happens with that? You know, it's a, a, a more simpler plot line, a more traditional plot line, let's say, as, as exciting as it is, than in Kraken. In Kraken, you're dealing with Blade Runner type stuff. And one of the you're things with Blade Runner is... You're painting on a bigger canvas, too. Yeah, you've got, yeah, you've got mm-hmm. to present this whole world. Because you're dealing with a futuristic society, 30 years hence, that has been affected by all the oceans of the world, pretty much, the impact that these predators exploding in numbers has had on it. So, well, yeah, the I, economy I and everything else. You. I think mm-hmm. I told you that it kind of reminded it had kind of had a starship troopers type vibe mm-hmm. to it, and it was also reminded of uh, Arthur C. Clarke's The Deep Range, mm-hmm. a book I I've been meaning to read one of these days. If oh, I ever dude, get I love the... that book, man. It's the next uh, to Childhood's End is my favorite. Arthur C. Clarke. I have a stack of books that I'm supposed to be reading. I never get a chance to. (laughs) I don't have time to read my own stuff, okay? And I'm my biggest fan. So you would think that I'd read my own stuff, but, you know, hey. But anyway, so, yes, uh, there's a lot going on in Kraken Volume 2. It is going to be very dramatic. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of upset fans and readers that want to lynch me, whatever. You 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 know what I'm upset about? What, Amara getting killed? No, you left out the Nessies. There are no long swords in your stories. I'm I'm very disappointed. Well, first off, you never know. I mean, they are going to be exploring Diablo Caldera, as we know. And, I mean, anything could be in there. Let's be realistic. This is a Cretaceous-era extinct volcano, you know, with a giant saltwater lake in there from the Cretaceous. You know, there is a rainforest there. I mean, anything could be there. No Spinosauruses, though. If they find a giant toy monster or a giant long-necked seal, I'll never speak to you again. A giant long-necked seal, did you say? Yes. You, you don't know about the giant long-necked seal theory regarding long-necked sea serpents? Oh, God. Um, so, what I was saying was... <laughs> go on. Tell me about it. Dutch zoologist A.C. Odemans in the mm-hmm. 1890s. Wait, wait, hold on. Came up. 
There's never been a long neck seal in the history of the world that we know of, correct? Well, there's there's one account from an old uh, zoology journal from 1751 that mm-hmm. I rediscovered myself, describing some kind of long neck sea calf. But mm-hmm. the information that's based on a skin, and we all know how skins of animals can be stretched, and uh, there, you know, there's all kind of controversy about the size of giant snakes based on snake skins that have been preserved. That 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 the skins got stretched, and they're not nowhere near as big mm-hmm. as as the original estimates. So we we kind of suspect that it's probably the skin of a normal seal that got stretched or something. The original specimen has been lost, so nobody will know at this late date. But that's that's the only real tangible evidence beyond eyewitness stories that such an animal ever existed. I got you. Well, I'll tell you one thing that is based on you know 100% reality. I did enjoy the one little tweak I did with uh, with Kraken Volume One, where the uh, actually no no it was it was explored in uh, in Diablo actually my bad um, but I was able to have Caribbean monk seals on the island you know yeah on the uh, exterior and they're extinct so it was nice well, to be able, uh, extinct some people think they may survive in isolated populations exactly so I basically was able to give these animals a, a second shot so to speak by letting them. Their populations, their breeding populations, exist on the slopes of Diablo Caldera. Mm. Of course, uh, that actually tied into the story nicely when the natives, we'll call them, uh, would make offerings to feed the pliosaurs that they had in that lake when the pop- their populations were dwindling, and they would herd some of the monk seals in there with torches and feed them to the pliosaurs. Yep. See? So it all it all worked out hand in hand. I got to have the monk seals come back from the dead, so to speak, and also obviously use them as a viable source of protein, you know, to feed my captive sea monsters. Yep. Nutritious meals, monk seals. Wow. That's a flesh and blubber, you know. Can you imagine the horror of being chased into a, a lake and then to find out that Godzilla was waiting to eat you? Uh, oh, my God. There's always a bigger fish. Who said that? Come on. I'll give you a hint. Star Wars, Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. There's always a bigger Jar fish. Jar Jar Binks. I, oh, no, no, no. It's with oh. the Jedi. It's uh, Qui-Gon Jinn. Yes. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had to really set up a layout, a layout for you there eventually, but, you know, I was hoping one of you guys would just snap it up. No, but anyway. No. So, yeah, but lots of excitement coming for Kraken, too. It's a big book. It's actually bigger than the first one. So awesome. readers are going to really enjoy it. what's really great about that timing is now that we are officially into November, it won't be long before people have to start getting their Christmas lists out. Can you imagine that? My gosh. Yeah. Those crafty publishers, I bet they Wouldn't had that, that in mind all the time. that just be the best <laughs> Christmas gift ever? Well, I'll tell you this much. Even Kraken Volume 1 is going to be a great Christmas gift, and mm-hmm. there's going to be posters. I'm going to be having some promotional stuff where we're going to be giving out some posters for readers based on reader contests as well. 
nice. So I think they're really going to like this cover. It's really, I, I wish, I, I don't want to do any spoilers, but it is an incredible work of art. I mean, incredible. Everybody who has seen the painting, which, like I said, is in my office right now, they're like, oh, my God, that's disturbing. <laughs> I'm like, you don't like it? They're like, no, no I love it. And the other person the was artist, like, hmm? the same guy that did your poster with a girl in the big no, no, that's, head? No, uh-huh. that's, um, oh, my gosh, I deal with too many people. You would think I would be able to remember off the top of my head. Um, no, it's not the same artist. I cannot think of his name right now, although he is great. Um, Peter Shouten, I think, is the, the artist who did the uh, the Pliosaur, you know, have you hugged your Pliosaur today? No, Davide is the same artist that painted the new cover for book one, with the Pliosaur ah, about to swallow okay. the diver. Yeah. Mm, but yeah. this piece blows that one away. Your book covers are also disturbing. Thank you. I'll take so, that as a compliment. Max, I, des- I, des- I design it myself, you know. It, yeah, it gives me, the, the plague one really gives me the creeps. I don't know what it is about that, but. Oh, plague, I, I, I physically made that one myself. Oh. I actually made that. My my own with my own two little hands yeah, and my computer obviously yeah and I scary. it actually yeah it just placed in the semifinals actually for the uh, book for the book cover of the year in the horror category with authors DB I just found that out so now the final mm-hmm. vote will be for to determine who gets the gold medal and I hope it's us but I'm sorry Scott I interrupted you what can I-, I was going to ask you what is your mm-hmm. favorite piece of sea monster fiction by another author by another author. Yeah. Um, I would say Beast by Peter Benchley. That's a good mm-hmm. one. It's one of my mm-hmm. favorites. Yeah. I found it frightening. Okay. Not that he kept me up at night, but when I from the character's perspective, I found the notion of this cold blooded blue blooded, you know, this this loathsome, slimy thing just you know, eating people alive and stealthily at times, et cetera. You know, I, I found that to be very intriguing. I had some complaints about the book, and I know Peter's ghost is going to come and beat the snot out of me tonight <laughs> while I'm sleeping, or at least give me some bad dreams. But I did have two minor problems with the book, and they were problems that, well, the first one, I should say, was a learning thing for me because obviously I read this before I wrote mine, but uh, was that I felt that the squid did not get enough face time. You know, I thought that the pacing of the book could have been even more terrifying, as great as it was, if the squid had had more time, if he'd explored that creature and its appearances more. And keeping in mind, it's a squid, so it's, you know, kind of mindless people would think, although cephalopods are supposed to be well, intelligent, supposed especially to be very octopi. intelligent animals. Yeah. Oh. Well, octopuses, definitely. But, you know, I thought that that could have been done more, and I know his tendency is to focus more on the people, okay? But I think the public that reads these type of books, they want more of the monster, and that's what I try yeah. to give them. Well, you, you know, know people... Jaws was a great book, but I actually think that Beast is a better book. Mm-hmm. It is. Not that I'm not it fond is. of Jaws, too, but... Oh, yeah. It, it's, yeah. And I think that the, even the quality of the writing improved a little bit. But the, uh, you know, I, I think that people, like, like I had people complain uh, about 
crack in volume one that there wasn't enough of the monster in there, especially the octopus or octopi, octopuses, whatever you prefer. You know, but the point is, is that the octopus isn't the pivotal figure in the story until you know, the octopus has become more prevalent in the second half. But I think, I mean, they're in there enough. I mean, you've got so much going on there, for God's sake. You know, you're going to complain about what the name of the book is called Kraken. You know, I mean, there you've got everything going on in there. You've got appearances from the octopuses. You've got the ancient, that giant pliosaur rampaging around. You've got Ursula, the megalon shark. You've got the clash between that, those two. I mean, there's so there's plenty of stuff in there. But you know, I guess everybody wants to have an axe to grind, et cetera. But but back to Beast, there was one part of the book that I didn't like at all, and that was that where my he failed to you know achieve a suspension of of disbelief with me. Because at the end of the book, as opposed to the movie, a cow sperm whale saves them at the end, comes up out of the water like a house, and chomps down on the squid and bites off the entire, its entire body and head effectively and kills it. You've read that, remember? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And the a cow sperm whale... At maximum, I believe, is like 45 feet, maybe 50 in extreme circumstances, but usually much smaller. And, but yeah. this is a revenge thing. Her calf was killed, and she wants revenge, and I could appreciate yep. that part. But the sheer physics of it, this squid is over 100 feet long. Hmm. Yeah, 150, just, I think. Yeah, it's physically impossible. You know, not to mention a sperm whale's mouth is barely big enough to accommodate a human being, let alone to bite off the entire, you know, even, you know, it just, it, that part right there, I was like, Ugh. you know, and that's, you know, when, but everybody makes mistakes when it comes to your research, you know, yeah. so you'll think a sperm whale is bigger than it is, especially a female. If you, you know, I've been called on mistakes myself, like, for example, having kelp in Florida. Yeah, that's People a Pacific Coast thing. No, no, no. Actually, that's not true. Off Long Island, there's kelp as well. I know, because I've dragged it up while fishing. Okay? Yeah. And you can look it up. But it does not apparently extend all the way to Florida. So, Which, Max made a mistake. See? Relying Ooh. on my fishing experience. Yes. Can you believe it? I'm admitting I know, I, it. You admitted it? Oh, I'm admitting it, yes. I made a mistake because I thought that because it was I had actually encountered kelp myself up in the northeast that it extended down to Florida as well. And as it turns out, it does not. Okay? And people are always quick to point that out. Hey, you have okay. sea lions in your book, you know, your great white shark that says it eats sea lions and stuff like that, you know. Any little thing. Okay? But you see, on the other side, in the world of Cronus Rising Kelp does grow around Florida. That's right. I mean, yeah. it's... In fact, in Kraken 1 and Kraken 2, I make it a point to have kelp there. It's an alternate just, reality. Exactly. Like the right. just for Star Trek. At this point, it's cons- for consistency's sake. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Every There's always going to be somebody that wants to look for some little thing that they can pick on in your story. Maybe some you French know. guy. 
<clears throat> no, I mean it could be anybody, dude. It, it could be somebody that that looks like you know an actor even. But there's always somebody. And when you're doing research for your book, you have to make sure that you're really on point. You know, for book one, I had to research. You know, the Yucatan impact, its trajectory, the size. I had to try and crunch numbers to figure out how big this asteroid was, the speed that it hit. You know, everything and anything you could think of, how submarines work, how sound well, travels now, through the water. You you had the plyosaur giving birth on land, mm-hmm. laying eggs, not because you didn't know about that they gave live birth, but for dramatic purposes, correct? Well, technically, Cronus Rising was written before any discovery about plesiosaurs giving birth to live young. That's the we, that's first off, because it was written. Yeah, it was written back in like 2003, something like that. Initially, well, 2003. Check this out. The, mm-hmm. the the plesiosaur discovered in Kansas with the embryo inside of it mm-hmm. was discovered in 1987, but was not described in the scientific literature until 2011. And there you go. I knew about it in 1994 because it was mentioned in a book, a popular book. Well, to be fair, uh, it was not, how can I say this? It was not public knowledge back then, obviously. And I did know about it before Cronus Rising came out in 2014. However... The storyline called for the animal to be coming ashore to lay eggs. Because without that, I would have lost my 80 hatchlings that multiplied into a million hungry little mouths to feed for Kraken and taking over the Earth's oceans, etc. So for the point of the story, number one, it was necessary for it to stay. Number two, one can always argue the point that, well, we don't know every species of plesiosaur and plyosaur mm-hmm. or how they laid eggs. So one could always argue that point. But sure, you've most got lizards that some mm-hmm. lizards lay eggs and other ones give live birth. Yeah, and snakes too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, anacondas give birth to live young, pythons lay eggs, and they, yeah. and they guard mm-hmm. them. Okay? But most importantly, <clears throat> in the world of Cronus rising... The Kronosaurus Imperator cow does come ashore to lay eggs, using the tide, the incoming tide, of course, to assist her moving her mammoth body while struggling against the forces of gravity. But uh, if I remember right, you've got some giving live birth in Kraken. Uh, In Kraken Volume 1, it has been discovered that Tiamat, the Pliosaur Queen who is being held captive in Tartarus, the research facility, does have the capability of giving birth to live young. And this is something that has become an alarming factor for Dirk Braddock and, excuse me, the beauteous Stacy, his partner in crime and fellow Pliosaur enthusiast, because should Tiamat be allowed to breed find a successful mate and be allowed to breed and multiply, then there would be an additional threat added to Earth's oceans as well because her offspring would be much larger than a normal pliosaur hatchling, which is only about five feet long. Her offspring would be the size of 
an adolescent bull approaching puberty, if not larger, 30 well, yeah, feet, they, maybe 40 feet long. In the paper about the, the plesiosaur with the embryo in it, they suggest that it's got a K-selected life strategy that it gave birth to single, large offspring. The, the mm-hmm. baby plesiosaur that's in the, feet, the mother is substantially large. I think it's like, oh... I can't is remember. This, the, this, it's this probably is probably a third those, as big as the the mother. Hmm. One of this is one of the I mean, polycotyledons you're talking about. Polycotylus latipinus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one once again, ones. you'd be dealing with a large offspring. Now she might have one. I, I, she might have two, three, or four. But the point is, is that you know it would be a small number of very large offspring that were already capable of surviving whether yeah. there's maternal care provided or not. And the only enemies that they had at that size ostensibly would be others of their own kind or the regular you know, chronosaurus imperators that are running around out there. And if maternal care was provided, then your survival yeah. rate would increase dramatically because let's be realistic. You know, if you had Tiamat as your mom, you know, watching your back, you know, and you're in a pod formation, yeah. obviously, you know, there's not much out there that's going to come near you. Mm. So. Well, to borrow a line from Buford T. Justice, <laughs> it's time to pee on the fire and call in the dogs. We've run out of time. <laughs> there's a visual I will yeah, be enjoying yeah. the rest of the day. Yep. <clears throat> so I know what I'm going to ask for, for Christmas mm. is your other three books, because I have the one. Right, you have four total. Which one? Right? Which one do you have? Um, Chronos one? Rising. Okay. Yep. So I'm going to ask for the other one, and I'm pretty sure that I'll get them. <sighs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Maxi Claus if he'll send me a pliosaur skull. <laughs> a pliosaur <laughs> skull. Yeah, a real one. Really. You know, That's I don't even I have. You know, I do have to add a pliosaur or tooth to my collection at some point, mm-hmm. but not right this minute. Yeah. That's, right, that's well, like buying a T-Rex tooth. It's been a blast. We it wish has we, been. We got we two hours in. So. Thank you so much, guys. I really right. enjoyed the experience, yeah, and I, and have a great day. Oh, wait a minute. We gotta yes. we gotta tell people where to find you on your website. Oh, I'm sorry. Should you tell them or should I tell them? Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, sure. Um, so basically the Cronus Rising website, where you can also register for the newsletter and get free updates on everything, is www.cronusrising.com. That's K-R-O-N-O-S-R-I-S-I-N-G.com. Did I spell that okay. right? Yes. And, and on Facebook. Cro- the Carnival Cruise um articles in there you guys so make sure you all go and check that out and you can also get your books there right uh yeah they can they have direct links there or on amazon or through barnes and noble site and if anybody wants to check us out on social media they can just look up the cronus rising novel series there's regular posts there updates and some pending videos as well all right awesome yep all right right, guys have a good day max good night thank you so much you too. Right, Bye-bye. Bye.